Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, right after Jesus made his famous Sermon on the Mount, a Roman centurion impressed Jesus with his faith. When after sending Jewish elders to request that he'd heal his servant, he told him, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. And that's why I didn't feel worthy to come to you personally. So please, don't trouble yourself any further, but just speak a word and the deed will be done. Just heal my servant from where you are with just a word and it'll be done. And Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. But then he told the messengers, go tell him that it shall be done for him as he has believed. And when the messengers got back, sure enough, the servant had been completely healed. Then traveling on to the town of Nain at the city gate, there was a funeral underway. It was for a man who had died, leaving his mother behind, who was a widow. Jesus walked up to the mother and said, don't cry. And then he walked up to the corpse and said, young man, I tell you, arise. And then the man immediately sat up and started talking. Of course, this freaked people out. And of course, the report of this event spread all over the place. Then everyone from all over came to be healed of all kinds of infirmities, and Jesus healed every last one of them. He healed terminal illnesses, restored limbs to the crippled, gave sight back to the blind, cast out demons from those who were demon-possessed. And in the middle of all of this, two disciples of John the Baptist came up to deliver a message from John, who was still in prison. And they asked him, Are you the one we've been looking for, the one who was to come, or should we continue to look for another? Jesus told them, Go report to John what you see here. And they left to go back to report to John. Then Jesus said to the crowd around him, Remember when you all went out in the wilderness to see John? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Of course not. You went out to see a prophet, right? You bet he's a prophet. He's the one prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. The one who is prophesied to come before me and prepare my way. But if you had been willing, he could have been the one prophesied of in Malachi chapter 4 also the one who would come before me and prepare my way to destroy the wicked and bring in the kingdom. And then Jesus went into a little rant about Israel's lack of faith. He mocked the various rebukes that he had received from Israel's religious leadership since he started his ministry. He said, John came and didn't eat or drink, and you called him demon-possessed. Then I came and openly ate and drank, and then you called me a glutton and a drunk, a man who eats and drinks with notorious sinners and tax collectors. Then he pronounced judgment on all the various towns and communities who saw great signs and miracles but did not repent of anything. He even goes so far to say, if Sodom had seen the work that I performed in your town, they'd still be around to this day. Now that's where we left off last time. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to dine with him. And this neat little event is recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to dine with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman. That sounds funny in the English. What's the big deal? Behold. But what's fixing to happen here is a real shocker. It was bold and against the grain of common etiquette in a big way. Women were not invited to formal banquets. And Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers, didn't speak to women in public. It was unseemly to the culture of that day. This woman, in spite of the fact that women were not invited, in spite of the fact that women didn't speak publicly to Jewish rabbis, she comes in anyway. That's why this verse starts off with the behold a woman phrase, because this was out there. But then what makes this intrusion even more bold is that it says, behold a woman of the town who was an especially wicked sinner. Now, we have no idea what that means. It doesn't say what her sins were. But from the language, it's inferred or assumed 
that she was sexually promiscuous because she's publicly known for being an especially wicked sinner. She may have been a prostitute. We don't know because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't even tell us her name, which is interesting, and I'll show you why here in a minute. But all we do know is that this is a woman, and she's a woman who's publicly known to be an especially wicked sinner, whatever that means. So there's no way in the world she would have been invited to this banquet. This is a Pharisee's house. He wouldn't have invited her to begin with because women weren't invited, but certainly not women who were publicly known to be sinful. This is a social embarrassment for the Pharisee. She wouldn't have been welcome, much less invited. So it says, Behold, a woman of the town who is an especially wicked sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them off with the hair of her head and kissed his feet affectionately and then anointed them with the ointment perfume. It doesn't say here yet, but you get the impression she's someone else who, like the Roman centurion, gets it. She knows who Jesus is. Why else would she boldly barge in like this and do what she's doing? She's lived a life that she's not proud of. For whatever reason, things got out of hand, out of her control. She is who she is, extremely sinful, publicly so. But then it says, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. You know, if Jesus had just been a teacher and nothing more, if he had been a prophet and nothing more, what would be the big deal, right? But if you knew who he was, like we do, 21st century Christians reading the Gospels, can you imagine... Walking by a house, you see the light coming from the window, and you think to yourself, he's in there. He's really in there. The story we went through earlier, the Roman centurion, he got it. He sent messengers to ask Jesus to come to his house to heal his servant, but the moment he realized he was on his way, he thought, oh my gosh, I'm not worthy to have him come under my roof. And here we have this poor woman who's publicly known throughout the community for her sin, whatever it is. What kind of life is that? And then she learns that the Messiah, the King of Israel, God himself in human flesh, one who's prophesied to die on the cross for her sins, she hears that he's in the Pharisee's house. To heck with common courtesy in this world's standards or proper procedure. I'm getting in there, you know? And she decides she's going to anoint his feet with ointment perfume. That was high-quality stuff. Now, she assumes that his feet have already been washed. That was the proper procedure if you were an invited guest. So she's going to add to that. She's going to anoint his feet with expensive ointment perfume. But when she gets in there and then gets down on her knees behind him to get started, because the way they reclined at the table, they didn't use chairs. The table was low, so they usually had a pillow or a cushion to sit down on, and then they'd stretch out toward the table, leaning on their side. They'd kind of prop themselves up, and their legs and feet would stretch out behind them. So when she gets in there and then gets down on her knees behind him to get started, she's overwhelmed and begins to cry because she knows who he is. And because of who he is, she knows that he knows who she is. She knows that he's the one who's watched her her entire life from the time before things got out of hand, back when she was just an innocent little girl, to the present day where she's known as an especially wicked sinner. She already knows he loves her. She already knows why he's here. And as she's kneeling there to begin putting the ointment perfume on his feet, 
she's looking right at his feet and becomes overwhelmed and starts crying. And then suddenly her tears hit his feet, so she wipes them off with her hair and then kisses them and then anoints them with the ointment perfume. And then it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would surely know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a notorious sinner, a social outcast, devoted to sin. And Jesus, replying, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Teacher, say it. Now what Jesus is about to say to Simon, keep in mind that this woman is still there hearing this as she continues to anoint his feet. Jesus tells Simon, A certain lender of money at interest had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, folks, a denarii was a day's wage. One denarii was a day's wage. So he said, A certain lender of money at interest had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had no means of paying... He freely forgave them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I take it, for whom he forgave and canceled more. And Jesus said to him, You have decided correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But she, from the moment I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet tenderly and caressingly. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with costly and rare perfume. Now, folks, reading this with a modern-day perspective kind of takes away from what's happening here. Today, men don't normally kiss each other as a common courtesy, not even two people of the opposite sex unless they're dating or something. I've got some friends I spend every weekend with, great friends, the best I've ever had, but at the most, we might hug once in a while. We don't greet each other with kisses. But in the culture of Jesus' day, they did. That was standard procedure and common courtesy. When you invited someone into your home as your guest, you greeted them with a kiss. And then, because of the dry weather, you'd anoint them with a touch of olive oil. No big deal, just a touch. And then you would either personally or with servants, you would wash their feet. Because everybody wore sandals back then. Your feet would get sand and dirt on them from the walk. So all of these practices were common courtesies. But this Pharisee invited Jesus over to his home and didn't offer those common courtesies. Which means this invitation was apparently done with some reservations. We miss that because of our modern thinking, but this was an insult. And Jesus probably would not have said anything about it if it hadn't been for the fact that this woman came in and did all of those things, but then was looked down upon by the host. She's a wicked, notorious, sinful woman. And then Jesus even gets insulted. If he really was a prophet, he'd know who this vile, wicked, heathen woman is who's kissing him and washing his feet. And that's when Jesus had enough. And so eloquently says, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) You know... And he answered, Teacher, say it. And Jesus says, A certain lender of money at interest had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other owed him 50. And when both had no means of paying, he freely forgave them both. But which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I take it for whom he forgave and canceled more. And Jesus said to him, You have decided correctly. 
See, Jesus had to forgive the Pharisee too. Both of them were sinners. The woman and the Pharisee both were sinners. But which one of them was forgiven more? Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she from the moment I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet tenderly and caressingly. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with costly and rare perfume. Therefore I tell you, her sins, many as they are, are forgiven her, because she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's another one of those famous quotes that gets misquoted constantly. Even now when we read this, we hear, He who forgives little, loves little. But that's not what it says. It's true that he who forgives little, loves little, but that's not what this says. It says, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about that. Those of us who consider ourselves good Christians, those of us who've devoted our lives to him, who've really tried hard to follow his word, might want to slow down and evaluate our attitude towards God. We might want to think about our own love for God. Is that love stronger now than it was when we first started loving him, or is it weaker? Are we like the Pharisee who's devoted ourselves to following his word and forgot our first love and have become dry and cold? Or are we like the sinful woman, we love God more because we know we're forgiven more? I remember the first time this verse knocked me between the eyes. As a single man, I was constantly looking for the perfect mate. I had this internal checkoff list. And she had to meet all of the requirements that I had on that list. She had to be like this, and she had to be like that. She had to have this kind of attitude and that kind of attitude. Now, don't get me wrong. A list is a good thing. The Bible teaches us to find partners who are similar to us because a partnership that's uneven is a problem. Both need to be Christians. That's not even open for discussion. The New Testament hammers that point home. No man can serve two masters. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Both partners need to be Christians, and both need to be similar. An unequally yoked union isn't a union. So a basic list is a good thing to have, to a point. But my list was rigid. She had to be perfect. And I'll never forget what God taught me when I first stumbled on this verse, and the message I received from this was, Josh, if she's perfect the way you want her to be, she won't love you very much, because those who are forgiven little love little. What good is the perfect mate if she doesn't love you? You will wind up owing her more love than she owes you because she's earned your love with her perfection. Is that what you really want, Josh? Do you want to be loved like this Pharisee loves? Or would you rather be loved the way this woman loves? Because those who are forgiven little, love little. Talk about getting a brick hit right in the head. You know, Karen and I talk about that a lot. She tells me that when she prays, she asks God for bricks because she knows she's hard-headed. So am I. So I've picked up on that, and I ask God for bricks. But when God spoke to me through this verse many years ago, this was a big brick. And ever since then, I've left my future mate, whoever she is, I've completely put that in God's hands. The only thing on that list now is that she has to be a Christian, and it has to be God's idea that we get together. I'm not going to look and pursue people and then force God to make it work. I'm not going to do that. I'd like to find somebody, but it's not a priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you, Jesus says. 
Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she from the moment I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet tenderly and caressingly. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with costly and rare perfume. Therefore I tell you, her sins, many as they are, are forgiven her, because she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What saved her, folks? According to Jesus, it was her faith. It wasn't her tears. It wasn't her gift of ointment perfume. It was her faith. That faith she had before she walked in there. It was the faith that got her in there. That gave her the guts to go in there. It was the faith that prompted the gift. It was the faith that created the tears. To anyone who likes to debate whether or not works can save a person, they usually quote verses from the book of James where it says, Faith without works is dead. That doesn't change the fact that faith alone is what saves you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, hammer that point home. It says it's by faith, not by works, that we're saved, lest anyone should boast. What James is pointing out is that faith that saves will be accompanied by works. The works don't save, but saving faith will be accompanied by works. This woman's faith alone is what saved her. But her faith was the driving force behind everything she just did. And Jesus accepted her acts of love because he knew they were outward evidences of her faith. And then he tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She could now be in peace because Jesus himself told her, not a priest, not a clergyman, Jesus himself told her, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And that's the exact same way we know that our sins are forgiven. It's not because we deserve it, it's not because we did anything to earn it, not because we go to church, not because some priest or clergyman told us, but because Jesus himself tells us all throughout the gospel, especially the book of John, all throughout Paul's letters. Jesus told us, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has, past tense, has saved you. Anyone who believes in me, that is to adhere and trust in me, who trusts in my act as a balanced transfer of debt, anyone who believes in me will not perish, but has already passed over death and entered eternal life. Something else about this whole scenario here that's kind of neat. Once again, we have a story here in which the star of the movie is unnamed. This woman was unnamed. The Pharisee was named in the story. His name was Simon. Of course, Jesus is named. But the woman was just called a woman, a notorious wicked sinner. The last woman we encountered whose name was left out was the woman at the well recorded in John's account. She was publicly known for her sin. Only in that account, it actually goes all the way and tells us what those sins were. She had been married five times and was now living with another man who wasn't her husband. She was a social outcast, and the Holy Spirit chose to leave her name out of the narrative. Why? Could it be that the Holy Spirit wants the woman in the narrative to symbolize a greater body of people known as the Bride of Christ? Those of us who have been saved by faith were given the title the Bride of Christ. We are the woman in this story, whether it's the story of the woman at the well or the woman right here. The woman at the well didn't recognize who Jesus was at first. He approached her and then had to talk with her a little bit, but she eventually got it, and she accepted it with much excitement and open arms. Whereas this woman already got it before 
And she's the one who approached him. She had been holding back, but finally broke down and approached him to accept his gift. She's us. We're going to continue to see examples of unnamed women throughout the narrative who are in a position of being accused of sin by the religious leadership, in some cases demanding a penalty for their sin, to which Jesus responds with forgiveness and eventually becomes the one who's given the death penalty by those religious leaders in our place. And in most of those cases, the Holy Spirit chooses to leave out the name of the woman to symbolize the bride of Christ. Kind of neat. Now, according to Luke chapter 8, first three verses of Luke chapter 8, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through towns and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the twelve apostles were with him. And also, certain women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. One was Mary, called Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been expelled. And Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who ministered and provided for him out of their property and personal belongings. So Jesus and the twelve have a group of people who are personally providing for their needs out of their own assets. Now so far we have already seen Jesus expelling demons from several people so far. Sometimes the narrative slows down and zeroes in on a particular event while other times the narrative just says it happened. Jesus healed the multitude of diseases, restored sight to the blind, restored limbs to the crippled. Many demons were also expelled, that kind of thing. That kind of quick and broad summary-like narrative. But apparently, one of those who had been cleaned from demonic possession was a woman named Mary Magdalene. And her name will come up again later. But she's not only clean, she decided to follow Jesus and help provide for the needs of him and his twelve apostles. That's kind of neat. Think of the vast multitudes that Jesus healed that just went along their own way. And this narrative here mentions along with Mary Magdalene is Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others. Many others who ministered and provided for him out of their own property and personal belongings. Now folks, this next reported event is a real tense situation that transpires here. In this scenario, we have Jesus and his faithful followers, plus a crowd of followers who are just curious spectators, a group of religious leaders who cross the line and accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed, and Jesus' mother and brothers who show up in the midst of all this and try to seize him by force because they think he's gone mad. All of this happens at the same time. So he's got the religious leaders claiming he's possessed, his own family members saying he's crazy. All of this going on at the same time with Jesus responding to accusations, defending positions to secure understanding from his faithful followers while accusing the religious leaders of evil intentions. All all voices from the crowd, both voices of praises and voices of condemnation are being flung out all over the place. So this is a tense and chaotic scenario coming up. And to make this entire scenario even more difficult for us as readers is that it contains a passage of Scripture that is the source of more confusion and false doctrine because it's constantly taken out of context. And as we go through this, you'll sense that everyone involved in the narrative is using raised voices. They're all talking on top of each other, and no one is listening to anyone. Even the report of this itself is hard to synchronize because of what's being reported. It was probably too chaotic to get everything down orderly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report what happened, but this is one of those instances where you really need the synchronization of all three reports to begin to even get an idea of what it was like. And even then, because of the chaos, you can tell that a lot more probably went down that we don't get to read about. Details jump all over the place. So what I've tried to do 
is I've taken the entire report that's provided by all three reporters and then tried to synchronize them in the order that I think it all went down. But I'm going to give you the passages so you can see these verses yourselves. And even as I go through this one verse at a time, I'll give you the book, chapter, and verse so you'll know where to find it. But the entire report, before we begin to take it apart, the whole event is reported by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 45. That's his whole report. Mark's is in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. That's Mark's whole report. And Luke's whole report is in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 36. That's the whole report. But as we go through this one verse at a time, I'm going to continue to reference each verse so you'll know where I'm going with this. We'll start off in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. It says, Then a blind and dumb man under the power of a demon was brought to Jesus, and he cured him, so that the blind and dumb man both spoke and saw. Now this miracle all by itself, folks, as it's reported here, is pretty impressive to begin with, but there's actually something else in here that makes this even more impressive. We're going to find out in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, that being what you and I would call an exorcist isn't just a New Testament thing. The Jewish religious system had their own equivalent to what we would call an exorcist. But they had a specific way of doing it. Before they could expel a demon from someone who was demon-possessed, they had to get the demon to identify itself. Because they would have to have that demon's specific identity to call it out by name. So if a demon had struck its victim with a dumbness, then that person couldn't be cured. Because there was no way of knowing the identity of the demon to command it specifically to come out. Now, whether that was actually necessary or not, I don't want to get into here. The point is, the Jewish religious system had their own way of casting out demons. But if the person who was demon-possessed couldn't speak, then there was no way of finding out what that demon's identity was, therefore no way of being able to command it to come out of its victim. That was the only case of demonic possession that the religious leaders couldn't deal with. But here comes Jesus, and it didn't slow him down. Let's look at Luke's report of this. It says in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, Now Jesus was driving out a demon that was dumb, and it occurred that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Matthew chapter 12, verses 23 to 24, saying all the crowds of people were stunned with bewildered wonder, and said, This cannot be the son of David, can it? But the Pharisees, hearing that, said, This man drives out demons only by the help of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, who is Beelzebub, folks? The Pharisees called him the prince of demons. But specifically, the name Beelzebub is derived from the name Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub, or Baal for short. Or just Baal. It's the Arabic word for the god that was worshipped in the Philistine city of Ekron. And there's Old Testament stories about the pagan worship of that god. And Baal, or Beelzebub, was believed to have been a super fallen angel who was one of seven princes personally appointed by Satan himself to rule over demons. That's why the Pharisees here call Beelzebub the prince of demons. If they were talking about Satan, they would have called him the king of demons. Now, the title Beelzebub, because of the source of power, in time the title itself had become synonymous with Satan. So we don't know if these Pharisees are using that title as a title for Satan himself, or if they're speaking of what was believed to have been a fallen angel working underneath Satan. So the Pharisees may have been going all the way and saying that Jesus was Satan himself, which is an even bigger insult. But either way, whether Beelzebub is synonymous with Satan, or one of seven fallen angels who rule underneath Satan, either way, the Pharisees here are claiming that Jesus' supernatural ability is provided by dark, satanic forces. 
Now, the religious leaders from day one have had a problem with faith. They didn't recognize the times they were in when he was born. The religious leadership didn't go looking for him when he was born. A bunch of magi from the east came through their own limited understanding of what Daniel had taught them hundreds of years ago. I say limited understanding. After examining the presence that they gave Jesus, they may have understood a whole lot more than we give them credit. The point is, they traveled a year's journey to meet the birth of the king. Where were the religious leaders? Picking their noses somewhere. It wasn't until King Herod asked them, where is the king of the Jews to be born? That they remembered, oh, mm, uh, oh yeah, Micah 5 two says he's supposed to be in Bethlehem somewhere. Nice job, guys, little eight. In Jesus' hometown, they tried to push him off a cliff. Every miracle he's performed from day one has been met with ridicule, skepticism, and accusations. You healed a man with leprosy on the Sabbath day. That ain't right. But now, <laughs> the accusations have crossed the line, folks. Now they are officially taking the position that Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the one prophesied of in the Old Testament. He is not their coming king, but he is a man who has supernatural abilities because he is in league with the pagan god, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, basically saying that Jesus is working for Satan. Luke chapter 11, verse 15 to 16 says, Some of them said he drives out demons because he is in league with Beelzebub, the prince of demons while others, to try to test him, demanded a sign of him from heaven. When you read this, you kind of get hacked off with these morons because Jesus just cast out demons from a possessed man who was blind and dumb. But after the religious leaders start saying that he only does it by the power of Beelzebub, then the crowd starts thinking, hmm, yeah, Satan could do what you just did, so how do we know you're not in league with Satan? Show us a sign from heaven. In other words, show us something that only supernatural power from heaven can do. Those are the crowds, and it's these religious leaders who started all this. And when I read this, and when we continue, you'll feel this too, you get the feel that some of the crowd picked up on that and just went with it. Because at first the crowd marveled. Remember, they said they marveled at this, and they were full of awe and wonder. But then right after hearing what the Pharisees said, then they said, oh yeah, you're just doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Give us a sign from heaven. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Then Jesus went to a house. So Jesus had had enough. He goes into a house with his disciples to eat. He doesn't even attempt to respond to the insanity that's outside. Not at first. He will here in a minute. But anyway, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 says, Then Jesus went to a house, but a throng came together again, so that Jesus and his disciples could not even take food. And when those who had belonged to him, when they heard it, and we're going to find out here later in the report, this is talking about his mother and brothers. It says, when those who belonged to him, his kinsmen heard it, they went out to take him by force. For they kept saying, he is out of his mind. He's beside himself. Deranged. Wow. For a time, Mary thought her son had taken all of this too far. It says, they kept saying, he is out of his mind. Never mind that her conception took place while she was still a virgin, announced to her by the angel Gabriel. Never mind all of that. Never mind what the shepherds told her the night he was born. Of course, it's been over 30 years since any of that happened. So while it's still in her memory, its initial impact has obviously faded. We could learn a lot from this, folks. How many of us have been impressed with something that God has shown us, either by some experience or direct revelation through his word? And as the years roll by, the initial impact that it had fades. It happens to all of us. It even happened to Mary, who not only got pregnant without having intercourse, but was paid a visit by the angel Gabriel. Folks, this is why God tries to build up in all of us maturity that's based on faith and his word and not some experience. Because there's something in our human DNA that makes the most grand supernatural experience.
experience lose its impact with the passing of time. Mary was on board with all of this when things hadn't even gotten started yet. Remember from John's report of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine? Mary was all about getting things started then. She couldn't wait. Hey, let's go. You're the Messiah. Let's get this show on the road. There's no more wine. What are you going to do about it? Jesus said to her, so there's no more wine. What's that got to do with us? This isn't our feast. We're invited guests. What do you want me to do about it? And then she tells the servants, they weren't her servants, but she tells them anyway, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And then Jesus goes ahead and performs a miracle, but he does it in secret. And we got into all of that when we covered John chapter 2. The point is, notice the difference here. It's been a little over a year since the wedding in Cana, maybe a year and a half. And now she thinks he's taken all of this too far. While Jesus has been going from town to town to town, healing people of diseases, restoring limbs to the crippled, giving sight to the blind, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, picked out twelve apostles, held a huge sermon on the mount in which thousands were there. Jesus' family has gotten nervous about all of this. We haven't seen anything of Mary since the wedding in Cana, so it isn't until now that we get an update as to what his personal family members think about all of this. Mark's report says they came to take him by force. You get the feel here that they've been talking about this and trying to figure out what to do. Kind of like an intervention type thing, you know? Hey, we got to get a hold of him and knock some sense into him before things get even worse. He's already got the entire nation of Israel talking about him. The religious leaders hate him. People are saying all kinds of things about him. And he won't stop. Where's all this going? I don't know, but we got to get together and grab him, straighten him out before things go even further than they already have. That's kind of the feel you get when you read this. And the timing couldn't have possibly been any worse. Because the crowd that's following him around now is mixed with mockers and slanderers claiming that he's working for Beelzebub. Continuing on, Mark chapter 3 verse 20 says, Jesus went to a house, but a throng came together again so that Jesus and his disciples could not even take food. And when those who belonged to him, his kinsmen, heard it, they went out to take him by force. For they kept saying, he's out of his mind. He's beside himself and deranged. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the help of the prince of demons he is casting out demons. But Jesus finally responds. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 27. It says, And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Now folks, I want you to remember those first four words in that verse, because they're vitally essential to understanding something that's coming up several verses later. It says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them. What were their thoughts? They continued to say out loud so everyone could hear. He only cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. That's what they were saying out loud. But is that what they were thinking? Maybe. But I want to suggest to you that what they were thinking and what they were saying were two different things. Because if what they had been thinking matched what they were saying, then Jesus' reply would have been prologued here in Matthew with the phrase, Then Jesus said, or Jesus replied to them and said. That would have worked. But what's this about? And knowing their thoughts, he said to them. This isn't obvious yet, but before we're through with this entire scenario, I think it'll be obvious that what they were saying is not what they believed. I'm going to suggest to you that these Pharisees, these individual Pharisees, who accused Jesus of working in league with Satan, actually knew better than that. They were spreading a quickly conjured up lie that they knew was a lie. Now, all of the other Pharisees that we've seen so far here in the narrative may have been just deceived. But these guys, they knew who Jesus really was. They knew he was the prophesied Messiah, the King of Israel, but was opposed to the idea of losing their social power over people and revered status. 
Now, there's not much to go on yet that proves that, but as we continue to move along here in this scenario, I think judging from Jesus' response, it'll become very apparent that that's what's going on. And that might not mean much to you now, but trust me, it will make all the difference in the world some verses later here in today's session that causes more confusion than any other passage of Scripture. So let's keep moving. Finally, after they've accused Jesus of only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom that is divided against itself is being brought to desolation and laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will last or continue to stand. And if Satan drives out Satan, he has become divided against himself and disunified. How then will his kingdom last or continue to stand? And if I drive out the demons by the help of Beelzebub, then by whose help do your sons drive them out? For this reason they shall be your judges. This is the verse that alludes to the fact, folks, that other Jewish religious leaders were casting out demons. Of course, they do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. So Jesus asked these idiots, after dismantling the flawed logic in the idea of demons being cast out by someone who's in league with Satan, he asked them, If I do it by the power of Beelzebub, by whose power do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they shall be your judges. Because, see, folks, if they do drive them out by the power of the Holy Spirit, then that means they're on the same side as the Lord. They're not against him. In other words, Jesus is saying, if they were here, I wouldn't have to say anything. They'd shut you up and put you in your place, you know? Mark chapter 3, verse 23 says that he summoned them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan drive out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided and rebelling against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to last. And if Satan has raised an insurrection against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is surely coming to an end. Luke's version of this is in Luke chapter 11, verse 17. It says, But he, well aware of their intent and purpose, said to them, Now folks, there it is again. But he, well aware of their intent and purpose. What was their intent and purpose? If they really believed that Jesus was only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then their intent and purpose would be a valid one. I mean, come on, if they actually thought Jesus was a fraud who had satanic help, then proclaiming that out loud to people who were following him would be a good thing. The intent and purpose would be to correct misguided people from following a cult leader who's out to destroy lives, not save them. So if their intent and purpose was good, albeit misguided, then Jesus' response might have been a little different. But their intent and purpose wasn't one of concern for the truth. Their intent and purpose was to deceive people from the truth, which means they themselves knew what the truth was, and they didn't want that truth to get out. So they scream out, He only drives out demons because he has the help of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Then according to Luke here, in Luke chapter 11, verse 17 to 19, it says, But Jesus, well aware of their intent and purpose, said to them, Every kingdom split up against itself is doomed and brought to desolation. And so house falls upon house. The disunited household will collapse. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom last? For you say that I expel demons with the help of Beelzebub. Now, if I expel demons with the help of Beelzebub, with whose help do your sons drive them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And then he says, according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you before you expected it. Luke chapter 11, verse 20 says, Jesus said, If I drive out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Jesus is going to continue to use this opportunity to talk about how demonic possession works for three reasons. 
One is to obviously show these Pharisees how flawed the logic is behind their contrived lie, but also to educate those listening into all of this who aren't rejecting the Messiah but need further conviction. It's also an education for his close followers who are there listening into all of this. And as his disciples, we can receive a valuable education from this. Continuing on the same theme, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, he says, How can a person go into a strong man's house and carry off his goods without first binding the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. In this parable, the house is Satan's kingdom. The strong man is Satan himself. So the goods inside the strong man's house can be anything from fallen angels under his authority, demons, or personal property that he's stolen. What property has Satan stolen, folks? On a small scale, you could point out people who are possessed. But Jesus is going further than that. Who is the God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4? Satan is. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, Satan reminded Jesus of that when he said to him, I have authority over the kingdoms of the earth, and I can give them to whomever I will. So Satan is the strong man. The house is his kingdom. And the goods are everything that is presently under his control, be they demons, a nation, or the world. So with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus said again, only this time from Mark's account. In Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus said, No one can go into a strong man's house and ransack his household goods right and left and seize them as plunder unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may thoroughly plunder his house. Since Satan is the strong man, who is the one who's binding him, folks? Driving out demons can't be done unless first the strong man is bound. If Satan is the strong man in this parable, who can overcome that strong man? Not Beelzebub. He's beneath Satan. He's merely the prince of demons, not their king. Only one stronger than Satan can drive out demons. So only by God's power can demons be driven out. That's what's behind all of this here. Now, I've heard psychics and channelers and mediums and witches claim that you don't really have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to drive out demons. Anybody can do it. But they're dangerously deceived, folks. Those demons say and do what they had to say and do to satisfy the psychics and wait for them to leave, and then things go back to the way they were before. In some cases, they get even worse. A best-case scenario for the poor victim who seeks an exorcism from a psychic is that their demons might leave their body to follow the psychic to their next customer to possess them. <laughs> you know, psychics are like realtors for demons. Don't be mistaken, those demons aren't obeying the voice of anyone. They're using the psychics and all of their equivalents like naive suckers playing pool against professional hustlers. And we could spend a whole hour talking about what's really going on there. But I don't have to because Jesus himself is going to touch upon that here in a minute. But let's finish up with this strongman parable before we go there. Obviously, with this parable, Jesus is talking about the ability to drive out demons. But then he takes it one step further with an additional statement that only Luke recorded in Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, when the strongman, fully armed, guards his own dwelling, his belongings are undisturbed. But when one stronger than he attacks him and conquers him, he robs him of his whole armor on which he had relied and divides up and distributes all of his goods as plunder. Whoa, we're not talking about demons anymore. Jesus is talking about the planet Earth. The strong man is Satan. His dwelling is the planet Earth. His belongings are the nations and the people. But when one stronger than he attacks him and conquers him, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. When one stronger than he attacks him and conquers him, he robs him of his whole armor on which he had relied 
and divides up and distributes all of his goods as plunder and as spoil. Jesus is going to take back the planet Earth. And when he does, he's going to divide up the nations and distribute this world's wealth and property as plunder and as spoil. And who will get that? According to the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus will be the God of this world then. Israel will be his kingdom. And that's when Satan will be literally bound. The strong man will be bound after one stronger than he attacks him and conquers him and robs him of his whole armor on which he had relied and divides up and distributes all of his goods as plunder, as spoil. Then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me for my side scatters. A couple of things I want to say real quick about that statement. He who is not with me is against me. We hear that phrase a lot. A lot of people use it in an argument or a debate about something when they're trying to lure people over to their way of thinking. And when all else fails, they throw that out there. Well, you're either with me or against me. But I've got news for you. Jesus Christ is the only person who can say that. Because of who said it, and because of the context of this verse, it's absolutely true. But only by him, and only right here. For anyone else to say that is to show the most absolute form of arrogance that exists. It's a preposterous statement to make because there are always other factors involved. We're not binary computers where everything is either ones or zeros. Unless you're Jesus Christ and talking about what he's talking about right here, there's always going to be middle ground. So when I hear people say, well, you're either with me or against me, I can't think of a statement more nonsensical with rhetoric or more brazen with ungodly pride and arrogance. No man can say this and it be accurate except for Jesus Christ and in the context of what he's talking about here because he's absolutely right. Who is the God of this world? Satan. So unless you belong to Christ, you belong to Satan. Now, you may not intend for it to be that way, but none of us have a choice. Don't think just because you're not a Satan worshiper that you're taking a neutral position. There is no neutral position because of the circumstances that we're born into. The earth belongs to God, but it's presently ruled under an enemy occupation. No matter how you want it, you're either a slave to death and sin, or you're a slave of God. There's no middle ground there because Satan won't allow it. It's not because God won't allow it. It's because of Satan's intrusions against our free will. God respects our free will, but Satan doesn't. We're born into slavery. Satan is our slave master. But the cross frees us up from all that. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, No man can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, or he will be beholden to one and despise the other. He didn't say you shouldn't serve two masters. He's saying it's impossible. It can't be done. There is no neutrality because we're born into slavery under the God of this world. And you'll either continue to be a born slave to the present God of this world, or you can be a reborn slave to the God who's going to overthrow the God of this world. There's no third party and there's no neutrality. Because even those who think they're neutral are Satan's favorite pawns. Because they provide excellent cover and accomplish more. There's an old saying that says the devil is in the details. It's the people who believe they're neutral in all of this that accomplish more for Satan. Because it's in the littlest things. A statement here. A facial expression there. A seemingly small, insignificant turn to the left when they should have turned right. All of these little things Satan influences, pulls strings, and uses just as a pawn on a chessboard. So 
what Jesus is saying here is 100% accurate, whether you know it or not, and whether you mean to or not. You're either with him or you're against him. You're either a free, willing participant of Christ's kingdom or you're a participant of Satan's kingdom, whether that means you're serving Satan willingly or blindly as one of his pawns. Now, the good news in all of this is that before everyone dies, they will no longer be blind pawns. I don't believe the blind pawns go to hell. I believe every blind pawn is given sight before they die. And then it's what they do with what they've seen that decides where they will spend eternity. Don't forget how this entire response of Jesus to the Pharisees got started. It said Jesus, knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose, he said to them. That's how all this started in Luke chapter 11, verse 17. And then down here in verse 23, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He's boldly accusing them of actively being against him to scatter. Their intent is an evil one. Their accusation was seriously flawed in its logic, so he pointed all of that out for those listening who were deceived by their accusations. But then he zeroes in on them, the Pharisees, and he tells them, knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose, he says to them, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, folks, this entire scenario isn't even half over. But we're going to stop it there because Jesus is about to lay several bombs on us here that we cannot possibly get into today. But I'll give you a hint. It's because of the thoughts, the intents, and the purposes of the Pharisees' hearts that Jesus lays a bomb on us that has become infamously known to us as the unforgivable unpardonable sin the traditional label for that sin comes from these next few verses Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and I want to devote some special attention to that for our next session because the unforgivable sin is not what most people think it is now you can probably figure it out for yourselves if you paid attention to today's session but to give it the total and complete attention that it deserves we're going to save it for next week until then we're out of here take care